0: So we are starting now with number 56. As I have announced every week, I may or may not be here next week. I have another definitive, definite uh, commitment to be here or not be here, so just wait and see what happens, (laughs) okay? Number 56. Another boy at our Ranche school liked to smoke. I didn't forbid him to. That would only have made him sneak behind the barn for a puff. Instead, I said to him, smoke if you like. It is all right. All I ask is that every time you feel the desire, come and smoke in my presence. (laughs) Well, he did, in fact, come once or twice to test me. After that, however, he simply couldn't go on and drop the habit completely. You know, in Autobiography of a Yogi, there's the part there where Sri Yukteswar and Master and some of Master's friends are on their way up to Kashmir, I think, and uh, Sri Teshwar says, your friend has gone out to get the fresh air because he wants to smoke. No, no, Yogananda says, he wouldn't do that because he puts a footnote, it's very disrespectful to smoke in front of your elders. And so it wasn't merely that he was doing this habit, but he had to sit in front of um, Yogananda and break, you know, such a cultural taboo I just love it. Can't you just see the poor guy just sitting there? I'm sure Master just sat quietly, probably, <laughs> you know, and he had to smoke and then let the smoke out and then smoke let the smoke out. I suspect, although he doesn't give you anything, that Master didn't make it easy for him. I mean, just brilliant. And probably there really wasn't an ounce of judgment. He just sat there and let the man, the boy, experience the consequences of his own action. It was a great idea. You have to know your subject, though. Otherwise, the person would just smoke in front of you for the rest of his life. My grandson. I could tell the wheels of your grandmother were turning. <laughs> you know, you have to have, essentially, to begin with, someone who's sattvic enough to be conscious of his own energy and uh, who, who cares enough. You know, Master was any of those boys who had the, the karma to be in his school had probably had pretty good karma anyway but given all of that it really was brilliant I mean parents try that if you're going to try it they say you know do it in my house with me I don't know if it always works or not probably depends okay also it's it's interesting what Master is also emphasizing here is that he didn't want to drive the boy into hypocrisy which would have been just pretending to acquiesce but not really. That was worse. And that is a, that's a very important point about that story. He would just go behind the barn and smoke anyway. Master knew he didn't have sufficient hold on him that, that merely forbidding it would actually have an effect. And there's a very important lesson in there because sometimes uh, we just try to overpower other people either guilt them into doing it or if we're parents we just try to overpower them you're smaller than I am and you have to do it but that just leads to hypocrisy or to deep resentment but not to transformation tricky business okay number 57 when it came to living for God the master could be quite austere this is where um when we were talking last week about Master being appropriate but not harsh unless it was the appropriate thing to do Master, and he, Master Swami uses the word austere which I think is a very good word because austere just means it, it's, it's a very simple proposition to him there's no there's not a lot of fluff around it he's very austere when it came to living for God Master could be very austere um, Swamiji is also such a wordsmith because that's, that's not Master's word, that's Swami's description of him. And I can see Swami sitting there trying to think what would be exactly the right word and coming up with that one because it, it really has nuances of meaning. I don't know any language but English, but Swami often talks about how wonderful English is because it just has so many words. And when I was in Italy for the first time, which was uh, many years ago, and I'd never been out of the country, ever, so I'd never really been anywhere where people... Well, I'd, I'd been where people were speaking Spanish because I grew up, grew up on the border. But uh, in, in Italian, I said to someone afterwards, they don't have a lot of words, do they? Because <laughs> I just kept hearing the same words so often. <laughs> and that was when he started talking about the plethora of words in English that just don't exist elsewhere. Everything was bella or bellissima, and you know that was just about it, <laughs> no matter what happened. <laughs> Heber Kimball, a tall, dignified young man, visited Mount Washington with the intention of joining the monastery. The master had put me in charge of the monks, so I mentioned Heber's interest to him. Tell him from me, the master replied, that if he stays here, he can find salvation in this lifetime. This was no mean promise. I encouraged Heber to remain, therefore. The next day, he said to me, "Please ask the master what I should do about this problem. My parents are growing old. Is it better that I go back, find a job, and take care of them, or should I remain here?" I reported the question to Master, who replied very sternly, "That is for him to decide. We, on, we want only those here who are 100% for God." Did Heber stay? Yes, but not for very long. Interestingly, Heber is now in his 80s and he lives uh, south of Los Angeles. And when Swamiji was there in Los Angeles, he contacted him again and actually invited him to come and live in our Los Angeles center and had um, the people in our center, you know, make connection with him and try to encourage him. Swamiji, whenever he... He is anywhere near any of Master's disciples who who haven't um, stayed as uh, outwardly involved. He always makes some effort to find them and do everything he can to pull them back. I mean, Swami was in charge of the monks and he took Heber in as a monk. And that was, there, there was a responsibility there that um, he still has. Yeah. Did he respond at all? He did his best. He has a... a physical condition that requires him. I think he's, he's a little bit at higher altitude and he can't comfortably come to sea level or there was something that kept him where he is he also has a son who's, who's not able to live independently and he has to take care of his son there were some complicating factors but it was interesting Swami. I talked to Heber on the phone at great length once when uh, I was gathering stories for the miracles book he, and you know he had a, he had a very long and interesting life after he left, not Washington. He was very young, like he was still in college. He was a very young man. I don't know what to do with if I stay. If you stay, you will find God, and then you don't stay. I mean, it's it's there's there's many aspects of it. I was, um. I, I was actually writing about this. I was thinking about this and writing about it today or yesterday which is, you know, Swamiji could have faith in me, but I also had to have faith in myself. It wasn't enough that he would say that I could do it. I also had to believe that I could do it. I could believe that he believed I could do it. (laughs) But there's a piece where you you have to have it in your own heart or you can't make that that, uh, shift. It's not like you actually doubt the Master's words, but somehow or another there has to be something in you that also rises to it. Nobody can do it for you. So this, the, he, the guru puts out a certain force but unless that force becomes really integrated into your own nature um, then it won't work for you. I, uh, well, I'll, this is actually what I was writing about today so let me tell you about it. it was um, Let me think now it was exactly. I was, I was trying to get the nuance of the fact that I, I had trust in what Swami said but I, I, I just have a questioning nature. I have to push on it myself. And I have to push on it until um, until it's integrated and in that it's my own spontaneous reality. I mean, I can also say with quite confidence, Swami says. But, but, but if, if, it's, if it's within my grasp, I have to push it to the point where I really have it. And I can't just... I can't accept things superficially. It makes me annoying to everybody. But I just can't. I have to be able... I have to start it... Somebody will present something to me and I just have to take it to the ground and I have to rebuild it before I can be content with it. And not everybody has to. And everybody... Many people can take things in completely without that particular step. It's just the way my mind is constructed. And it's not really doubt. It's just temperament other people just can kind of take it straight from the heart and they kind of intuitively get it and they don't have to build something around it but this with Master you know he, he wasn't able to take it deeply enough but I, I mean I, I, was in, I remember a man in San Francisco that we met and uh, very fine man and Swamiji had me carry the message to him that he he, he really should move to Ananda and had me tell him I don't say this to very many people." And it was like, it was a message, it was about moving to Ananda, but it was stronger than that. It was essentially, you belong there, this is what you should do. And and, then, and they didn't know each other that well, but he, he just had me deliver an unequivocal message that this is what you're supposed to do. And the man thought it was interesting, but he never did anything with it. It was just beyond him to go there, so I always wondered, you know, it seemed it, it, it always intrigued me that Swami had me deliver that message in that way it wasn't as strong as you can find God and even having me, add, having me add I don't I don't say this kind of thing to anyone but I'm saying it to you yeah, and Peter just his name was Peter he just sort of looked at me and it was very cordial and then went about doing whatever he did and he faded from you I don't know what happened to him I'm sure fine things happened to him he was a good man you know, in retrospect, you think, "How could you?" But I know from the many times that I wasn't able to embrace what Swami asked of me. How easy it is! <laughs> it seems so simple from the outside. Of course, you would do it, but when you're actually on the inside of it, it's something in you just uh, is is uh, not ready and can't be disciplined, can't be can't be forced into submission one doesn't have the willpower I mean sometimes it's unconscious like I think it's in here where there was the woman who left to get married and Master said if she'd held out for 24 hours longer she would have been done with that karma forever you know did she know you you can only imagine that she didn't because 24 hours doesn't seem very long but what a battle between light and darkness must have been going on in her soul in that moment because Master was doing everything he could to hold her but he could only do what he could do. Adandava?
1: It's also interesting just sort of how subtle the draw away was. It wasn't anything obviously bad. It wasn't like I'm going to stop being a monk and go, you know, raise a family myself. It was like my parents need taken care of. I'm thinking about them. I'm not thinking about myself. You know, it's one of those things that seems good, but there it is balanced against something, you know, even better, (laughs) liberation in this lifetime.
0: And on a certain level, you would think that you ought to ask Master that question, you know, because you would think it would be a question of Dharma. So there must have been something in his tone. I mean, that that Master sensed. No, it wasn't a question of you know, help me to, I don't know, I don't know how you could ask it differently. Well, I
1: mean, the fact that there was a question at all, you know, because Master had told him ahead of time, and if he completely believed that, you know, 100% like Master said, would he need to ask the question? Would he
0: need to ask the question? Yeah. But how tricky the mind is. Uh, yes, Trisha. It's also interesting that There's parallel bookends to Hebrew's life there because the thing that kept him from staying at the monastery on the early part of his life was his parents, but the thing that kind of kept him from being at the monastery at the end of his life was his son, son. the younger generation. Once you start rolling, kind of did it both directions. Once you start rolling the karma, that's the problem. And there's more. There's other stories in here. There's another story in a few minutes about uh, someone else in a similar position. When the next story 58, a young woman once addressed a similar question to the master. My mother needs support, she said. Ought I to leave here for her sake and take a job? Leave at once, the master ordered her peremptorily. Get out! You aren't needed here. Wow. Imagine. So dismissive was he that she burst into tears. Master, she pleaded, my place is with you. I don't want to leave. I will just practice faith in God that He will tend to her needs. That is the right attitude," he replied with a kindly smile. When a person gives his life to God, the Lord takes care of every aspect of his life. The mother came later on to Mount. The mother came later on to Mount Washington and lived there happily until her death many years later. Mm. That was Diamanta. It was Daya Mata and her mother, yeah. So, I mean, in her case, Master shocked her into right attitude. You know, with um, Heber Kimball, he just waved his hand, but Daya was already deeply committed. So again, it's, it's a trick... It all, that's why it all, much depends on your inner attitude. You know, as soon as Master touched her on that, she... Protested, but I belong here. She was just, this was a moment of weakness, you would call it. With Hebrew, Hebrew didn't leave immediately to take care of his parents. He stayed for a while. I think he was just so young, it was hard for him to hold it, as he explained it to me. Um, page 15, number 59. A young boy came here years ago with his mother, the master told me. She, she generously asked me to help with his um, upbringing. I did my best, but every time I said anything to correct him, he would pucker his lips and cry, Mommy, he's scolding me. (laughs) At last, I gave him a toy airplane. He fell in love with it. After growing up, he left and became an airplane engineer. Where he found, and I love this line, whatever happiness his karma permitted him. Mm. People have to ask me themselves to discipline them otherwise it doesn't work for me to try to teach them that was a, that's a very interesting point because there was the out of the love the mother's love and her faith in the master she was trying to how many of us have been guilty of that we're trying so hard to get our relatives and our own children and we're just trying to push them we never have the opportunity to ask master to take an interest in their upbringing but we're we're trying to push people who aren't asking for it toward the spiritual path and I mean, even as a little boy, Master didn't see people as children or not children. They behaved according to the context of childhood, but they weren't really children. He'd been a, a full grown soul before and had the good karma to be brought there, but not karma good enough to be receptive to it. He still wanted his playthings. And I, I just love that Master eventually just gave up and handed him the airplane. <laughs> and and so master was still directing his life he was awakening him to what became his life where he had as much happiness as his karma permitted him to have oh my i wonder how much that was or wasn't mm-hmm. okay so i mean it's also with ourselves we have to constantly be asking ourselves how how genuinely and wholeheartedly willingly am i asking to be guided and how much is just because here I am and this is what I'm supposed to say? So, it, it, because they they're so sensitive. I mean, you know, the masters are very sensitive. They can um, they can tell what's hypocritical and what's genuine, and will only respond to you according to what is absolutely sincere. That's why sincerity is everything. Comments or questions? Number sixty. The master once, in speaking of a certain woman disciple, told me, I used to call her great mother. She had given all her children here for training. They weren't, all ready for our, they weren't all ready for our way of life, but she had great faith in me. The oldest boy was very sincere, though he lacked the spirit you all show. If, for instance, I asked him to fetch me a glass of water, he might reply, I'm busy now, can you get it yourself? He returned once from a long voyage. A young woman fell for him, as the expression is. She saw him through a romantic haze as the great world traveler. He and I were together in New York when he announced to me one day, I have to make a short visit to Philadelphia to buy a ring. I challenged him. You don't know anything about her. (laughs) He knew immediately what the conversation was. He replied defensively well aware of what I was referring to I said I know everything about her well he found out he hasn't had a day of happiness since he got married it will take him incarnations to become freed of this karma wow his mother when she saw his desire to get married sided with him against me my wish was to spare him great suffering, but her reaction was what most mothers—her her reaction was what most mothers would have been—in matters like this. Since then, I have never called her great mother again. This is also the same family. This is the Wright family. I think uh, this is Richard Wright. That's what happened to Richard Wright. The voyage they just returned to was the story of the autobiography. Hmm. Master had high hopes for him. Swami just said he was the one that Master hoped would be the president of SRF. But he didn't quite have it. But even there, he says he didn't quite have the spirit that you had. You know, it's so easy to think if you'd been standing there, it would have all been clear to you. But it isn't. You have the karma to be that close, and then you have the karma to be that blind. And talk about the power of delusion. You know, he he falls for this woman, and master master warns him, "Why are you getting involved with her?" And he defies his guru. And hasn't had a day of happiness since. It's just, I just don't even. <laughs> but you saw me tell stories about himself. You know, arguing with his guru and going away and dying when uh, the whole the whole lifetime that Bhrigu described, where. He left his wife, and then his wife wanted to join him in the ashram, and he sent her away. And because he sent her away, and that wasn't the right thing to have done, because she was a spiritual person, and he needed—he had—he didn't have a right to put her aside because she was, she she hadn't done anything to deserve that. She wanted to join him in the spiritual life rather than take him away from it. Because of that, it set up a dissonance, and the dissonance um, caused him to argue with his guru that's how Swami describes it and then that dissonance uh, uh, and then Swami went back He, he argued with his guru he left the ashram and he went to go back and make it up to his wife but she had died and so then Swami says in that life he soon died of a broken heart and he said that's why he's had heart trouble you know just you set up these dissonances but you work them out Swami just tells that story now and it's Not his present reality. I mean, I say that because we all just run these cycles. It will take this man a long time to get through the karma because you, you, opportunity, if you squander an opportunity, there's a a karmic, um, you have to earn it again. I mean, just, it's just common sense. If you squander opportunities, you just don't get them back all that easily. I, uh, we we had a conversation. Romani just walked in. Romani, do you mind if I tell the story about your coat? Can I tell the story? This the story that Romani has about this coat that she's very, very attached to, this big wool coat that she really likes and and with good reason. And she was said she was walking down the the street on a cold rainy day in the coat and a homeless person who had some more energy than ordinary homeless people just sort of said out to her quite loudly, Great coat like that. And Ramani said, as soon as he said it, she clutched it more tightly. And then he said, I wish I had a coat like that. And so instead of even thinking about taking it off, she held it more tightly and walked home in it. Then, not very long after, she was rushing up the stairs trying to get to her apartment. And it's a long coat. If you're going upstairs in a long garment, it went under her feet. She put her foot on it. She had both her hands deep in the pocket. And I loved her expression. She went forward like a penguin just flat like that with no capacity to get her hands out. And her coat caused her to crash and get 12 stitches across her head right here. You know, an injury that could have been much worse if she hit her eye, but nonetheless it was just tip for tat. I told this story about 30 years ago I picked up a pair of gloves from the street that were not mine. Somebody had dropped them, but I picked them up They fit me perfectly, I had them for thirty years, I wore them only occasionally, I always felt bad about it, but I I just kept them. And then when I got my bicycle I bought a very expensive pair, expensive forty dollar pair of uh, insulated gloves and I lost, took two tries, but coming on Thanksgiving day one of them bounced out of the, the basket of my bike and by going back and forth I managed to find it and then two days later Again, one of them bounced out of the basket of my bike. Bounced out of the basket of my bike. And I drove up and down and it was gone. And I knew, absolutely, that it had just taken all that time for the karma to come back, but it was the karma of having picked up those glasses. Those uh, those gloves. They just weren't mine. So I finally just gave them away, which I should have done, you know, decades ago. It, it, it's And then, then the, the day or two later... I was driving in my car back from swimming at the YMCA and I see some young girl by the side on, the, on a sidewalk. You can see by her posture she's very distressed she's talking on her cell phone she has this long skirt which is totally wrapped around the back gear of her bicycle and she's absolutely just stuck there. I drove right past and I thought of the coat and the gloves and I turned around <laughs> I knew for sure that something would happen to my bike probably and my clothes <laughs> so I mean she was and she didn't you know what she'd called her father in Sunnyvale or something nobody could help her because she was just stuck there she would have to take her clothes off she didn't know what to do I just you know I, I, it hap- it's happened to me so I knew what it was I just crawled down in and I did it she was in tears she was so grateful But more than that, I just knew it. I could feel it. (laughs) I thanked her. I didn't explain the law of karma to her and the falling like a penguin and the right—you (laughs) know—nothing. It wasn't. But it's true, isn't it? You—you just the karma starts, and eventually, you know, it hits you. It, It has to come back. Swami turned his wife away when he shouldn't have done it in that previous incarnation, and it just sets a dissonance in motion. And the distance catches up with you. Which is why when things happen to us, you know, it's only occasionally that we can connect. Ramani was able to connect. I understood the gloves just perfectly. Just You just know. You know why this happened to you. There's not the slightest question in your mind. So it, it just keeps you, it makes you just very careful. It's not worth it. And And presumably then you get to the point where you want to marry someone that your guru says is not really who you think she is. And you don't struggle against it. You just say, oh, that's a good idea. I think I won't do that. Instead of rushing off to do it. Or when he says, would you like to bring me a glass of water? You just say, yes, sir. Which, but the seeds were there in one way or another. But of course seeds can be overcome. I was talking to a friend of mine um, about you know age and the difference and how you know, at, at, at the age I am now I look back at myself even in my forties and my fifties and I just, I was, I just did so many dumb things that I have a tendency when I see people in their forties and fifties to not think them to be qualified. <laughs> not because they're not qualified but because I recognize that we just can all keep learning. You have to, it's, I, I think of that because what it, what it must be like for a master. You know, how he must feel Because they have to respect us for who we are. I mean, we are functioning adults and quite clever in certain ways. And in other ways, we're just blind as bats. And they just have to watch us. Why are you going to Philadelphia to buy a ring? You don't know anything about her. And Master just has to say, Oh, okay, I do. He says to Heber, You could be liberated in this lifetime. Well, okay, so you won't be. Wow. Wow. But I imagine also on the other side of that that could hold him to the path and give him great hope. You know, because Master must have seen the whole trajectory of karma. But by making a promise like that it could also make him um, very optimistic about his spiritual potential. If it didn't make him feel crushed for not living up to it it could also make him feel very optimistic about it. You know, Master had faith in me. You never know. All right, number sixty-one. Marriage is seldom the beautiful thing it is popularly, um, it is popularly depicted. I smile at the typical movie plot. The hero is so handsome, and the heroine so lovely. And after all kinds of troubles, they get married, and so we are supposed to believe, live happily ever after. And then I think, yes, with rolling pins and black eyes. The producers, however, don't let us see that part. Master didn't spare words, did he? My goodness. Well, I'm going to read number 62 and then we'll talk about this one. The master was commenting to the monks on the high divorce rate in America. Too many people marry for the wrong reasons, sex and physical beauty um, usually. I sometimes think of it as a union between an elegant bow tie and a nice shade of lipstick." In other places, he said, you know, they hear a little romantic music, get into the mood, and the next thing you know, it's nothing but babies and bills. (laughs) In India, there are many more happy marriages. Marriage there is arranged by the parents, whose first concerns for their children's happiness. The hypnosis of adolescent infatuation isn't a factor. It is different, of course, when parents want to marry their children off for mercenary reasons, such as the bride's dowry. Money is as much a hypnosis as sex. If, however, the parents are sincerely interested in their children's happiness, there is a greater likelihood that the marriage will be a success. Physical attraction is both superficial and fleeting. Marriage in America today is a gamble like going to Las Vegas or playing the stock market. In India, there are many Romeo and Juliet marriages. The master paused, then added wryly, In a way, the system here is better. At least they find out more quickly. (laughs) I thought that was such an interesting little aside that he put into it. You know, there's a... In in reflecting on this, I was trying to think this through because a master also um, had great respect for um, noble love when he saw it. He talked about uh, Amalita Galacucci and how she'd been married to a very um, coarse man and had the courage to, to walk away from him, and then eventually married the man who accompanied her when she sang. And Master, you know, spoke in very loving terms about the nobility of that relationship. And so it wasn't like he was blind to it. And in another place, Master said, Human love, perfectly expressed, is almost the same as divine love and and God knows we need to learn you know we can't we can't just sit there and learn perfect love. we have to be in some kind of uh grist uh situation where we where the stone gets polished, and we're we're just pushed into that. Sri Yukteswar talks about it in the Holy Science, one little tiny bit of the holy science that I did understand. Um, and just talking about until the heart is purified, we are compelled from the heart to be in, in, in proximity and relationship with people. It doesn't always mean that we have to marry and have a family, but we can't be hermits. Because the heart is, is restless, it's not resolved. And that restlessness drives us into interactions and relationships and friendships and courtships and families in order um, for those restlessnesses to come to the surface and be resolved. And they're resolved through fulfillment and they're resolved through frustration, both. In other words, we simply learn, uh, we learn our misunderstandings, we learn what we don't know about what love really is, and then we also learn the limitations of it. And see, there's two in proximity to each other, these three. Master says, we're, you know, we're, we're given to believe that once, once you find whoever you're going to find, that it's all just settled. And this, uh, in this country, I mean, one of the reasons that there is so much uh, confusion is because the, um, the expectation around that one romantic relationship has become so exaggerated quite apart from the basis on which it's formed which is a whole other point but even just the expectation of the degree of eternal satisfaction that one will have once that single relationship is formed it's it's like no single relationship can carry that burden. Swamiji uh, when he rewrote Marie Corelli's book The Life Everlasting among other things he rewrote The End Because the end of the book, as she wrote it, is these two destined lovers, once they finally went through all the purification that they had to go through and they finally were allowed to be together, they just got on his uh, luxurious yacht and just sailed around together forever. And Swami said, no two people could be all in all to each other unless they're exceptionally stupid. That was his response. (laughs) (laughs) Who's <laughs> it it so perfect, you know? Because everybody needs more life than just one other person can give them. I mean, if we're talking soulmates on a divine level, that's quite different. But we're talking human romance. But what, one of the things that sinks the ship in so many Western uh, 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 homes is is just that the whole I, the whole premise is false. And so what may be going on may not even be that far off, but it's just that somebody, people want something that that can't be there. And I'm not saying that India is in such great shape either at the present time. Master was talking 50 or 60 years ago because the whole world is going in the same direction and infected with the same delusions. But the concept, especially when you talk about the expanded family, is that your husband or your wife is one of many relationships in the context and I mean I I remember how amused um, our whole American pilgrimage group always was with the concept of arranged marriage and we'd have to just go over it over and over and over and over again with our young at that time unmarried tour guide Um, but uh, uh, I remember talking to this woman and she said, uh, she'd mar- she actually had married his brother, and she said, she, she, this is how she talked about it, my husband is fine and my mother-in-law is really, really wonderful. You know, my, mother- my husband is okay and my mother-in-law is really great. That's how she put it. And nobody was embarrassed that she said that. <laughs> you know, the husband was okay and that was good, but the whole, it was a whole package. You know, you're part of all of it. So you just don't put everything on this one relationship. You live in context. And my husband is good, he's an honorable man, he'll take care of the children, he'll be good, and and the rest of my life is also going to work because there's more to it than just this. And so it's easier for everyone to function because nothing is bearing such a heavy burden. Uh, But but especially in our culture where the love of God is so little understood, and the longing of the heart is the same as it's always been, people don't know where to put it. So we just put it on each other. And it's tricky business because it can't always carry it. Anyway, there's a lot to be learned there. Swami said it's going to be generations before it straightens out. We're just in a, you know, this is what always happens in transition civilizations. (laughs) It goes like this. You know, all the the traditional stabilities um, unwind because we're moving from form into vibration and so form is breaking down and vibration isn't strong enough yet so we're just having to live through it but as Swami says as Master says too people are able to move through things faster and that's good yes
1: is the way it will sort itself out in a few generations um, going to be a stage where we're able to make those appropriate decisions for ourselves like the like you know, as opposed to America ending up having arranged marriages the way India does it, but us being able to be detached enough from ourselves to make—I
0: can't imagine uh, uh, people of marriageable age having the judgment that people who are twice their age could have, because you just right. don't know the future like your parents would know or the astrologer would know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it—it it, it seems to to allow the the people most with the least experience and the most, um, the 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 majority of likes and dislikes, it just seems like an unwise system.
1: So, so does Swami think that we would go more just towards no, that, the standard arranged marriage? You
0: no, know, his his answer. You know, he never he never spoke of arranged marriage as the answer ever. But what he said was, first he said, um, people have to under, have a greater understanding of sexuality and and have some mastery over sexuality before it will ever straighten out. Because that's what really just wrecks the whole system. And, and our culture is, 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 is galloping, uh, not merely sliding, but galloping as far away from right understanding as we can possibly gallop. And so we're just going to have to gallop all the way into that wall. And we're crashing on it already in terms of divorces and children growing up in divided households and you know, we're, we're just, we're, we're really going there in a big way and uh, so, but it, it will get worse before it gets better people will discover what works and what doesn't I'm
1: at this point what that might, might look like when we
0: well, I'll give there. you I'll give you an example from this is just a conversation I had, I mean this is a little bit frank so forgive me but I, I had the opportunity to talk to two high school girls very nice girls, very bright girls, really capable, lovely girls. They were 17 or 18 years old. And it was the summer school year, but warm weather. They were dressed in as few clothes as you could wear and actually still, well, I don't even know what's considered decent, you know. But they were covered from here, you know, from just above their breast to just, you know, just below their crotch. And that was all they had on. You know, the blouses were, you know, the kind that fall on and off and I mean, they were just wearing almost nothing. Both of them were beautiful girls with beautiful bodies, and it was all on display. Virtually all. I mean, even the blouses were a little, you know, a little peekaboo. And they were nice girls. I, so I said, I, I, I said, you know, can I ask you some questions, just as a friend? I said, can I ask you some questions? I said, have you ever... Thought, thought about, and we were, had been talking about community, and they were so interested in community and all of this. I said, have you ever thought about the effect of dressing like that has on the men that you're walking around, the men who see you? And they, they kind of went, everybody dresses like this. Every, all, uh, we all dress like this. I said, "That's not what I asked you. I said, have you ever thought about, and then I said, has anybody ever talked to you about the visual nature of the male sexual response? And they sort of said, like, who would talk to us about it? Oh, I don't know, your mother, you know, some friends of yours, a teacher, a guidance counselor, a doctor, some of your guy friends. Has nobody ever said a word to you about this? Nobody ever said a word to them. And then their response was, once I brought it up to them, you know that this is just, this is a fact. It, it, well, they said, it's their responsibility. I said, you know, we've just been talking about community. It's like you help people. If somebody is an alcoholic, you don't invite them over and then fill a whole bunch of glasses of whiskey and expect them to control themselves. It's like your friends. You, you, you think about the implications of your actions and how they affect others. Oh, that's interesting, you know. But I couldn't get them to buy it because they were so caught in the... On one hand, they were so attracted to the life that we have here... And I'd been talking to them about friendship and how we take care of each other and think of each other's welfare. And as soon as I brought it up, it was all about, I want to do it my way and it's their problem. So that's what I mean. You know, it's like, it's, a, it's terrible. I mean, I I said to them, frankly, you know, I had, I had a different period of my time, which was admittedly extremely brief. I said, but I always dressed like a nun because it was like, I don't want to just be provoking a response from every random male person walking down the street and even the finest men in the world they're still men it's just the way we're made women are made one way men are made another why would I want to provoke that response? it's just like and and all of this to them was just like you know these are very bright girls they'd spend all their energy deciding that men ought to be able to control themselves and it was their fault I just I mean I, I practically wept but I was very interested because this was a very, these were these were very nice women, young women. You know, these were not there was nothing cheesy about these girls at all, on any level. But they have nobody's told them anything. Except things that are terrible, basically. So that's that's what I mean, and that's what Swami was saying. You just you just have to educate each other. We have to understand. Children have to recognize what this force is. They have to think about how they're using it. And people are learning. You know, they're breaking out of hypocrisy. But where they're going is sideways. And sideways is probably the first step to up. But we're not going up yet. We're just going sideways. Does that make sense, all of that? And that's where Swami said it's going to be generations, several generations. We're going to have to train a whole generation of people. Because now we're all so busy breaking out of the boundaries of things that we can't think straight. But we are having experiences. And a a lot of these children who are growing up in split households are going to be thinking very differently about The first thing they're going to think about is that they're never going to get married. I had one young person who's grown up that way just basically said, oh yeah, your relationships, they're nice at the beginning and then there's a big blow up and it's over. You know, this was somebody 14. That's That's all she'd ever seen, so that's what she just thought they were. And once when uh, Tish and Davy were living in San Francisco, they went down there. Swami put them in charge of the house down there and they moved down there and their son was about five, four or five. And they were living in the house and they sent him to a little preschool somewhere near there. And he came back one day and he said to Davy, do you have a boyfriend? And she said, no honey, I don't have a boyfriend, you know, I have daddy. Well, all the other children's mothers have boyfriends. You know, she, he just couldn't put it together. <laughs> and he just assumed, because they also had fathers, and he had a father, but everybody else's mother had boyfriends. So how, how do you figure? So she had to start over and kind of explain it to him that it was a whole different story. But this is, I, the other conversation that I overheard was one little kid saying to another, how many grandparents do you have? And they said, Four. And he said, I have nine, he said. (laughs) And then he started talking about what happens to him on Christmas. (laughs) But nine was just a lot better than four. (laughs) All right, let's take a break. (laughs) All right. Any other comments or questions during the break? uh, Someone was commenting, which is what I was emphasizing too, that you know, far from getting the right messages, the, the reality, especially among young men and young women, is just getting more and more um, extreme. And it's, it's, it's. Um Swami so, um, made a comment that I read recently about. He was actually starting with rock and roll music. I mean, he would often speak of rock and roll at the time when rock and roll was so old that it looked innocent compared to what was really going on, but. He was actually talking about rock and roll. And he talked about how that very heavy downbeat just causes you to get more... It's, it, the, that heavy downbeat emphasizes your own egoic reality. And the more you listen to music like that, the more you just become involved in your own egoic reality. And the less you are able to take into account other people's realities. And what's going on a lot with men and women in the whole... I mean, just what I was saying about those young girls, which was a... You know, it's just... The women are fighting so hard against not being taken advantage of by men, but they're... It's like what we were talking about last week. You know, male and female is like just a gross physical characteristic. We're no longer remembering that we're just... Underneath that we're all just the same. And and for... You know, to, to people be fighting all the time against each other, it's just not a recipe for happiness. It's It's, it's very very deeply disturbing on on, uh, on a very profound level and I don't know where it's all going to go but it doesn't bode well for the happiness of people just people are going to have to have some very hard learnings in order to get through this so Master says well maybe our system is better because people learn faster but they're going to suffer more and so it's going to be hard for everybody and then and then I, I recently I was uh, just really appreciating, uh-huh. I, I'm in a period where I'm working, I'm writing, so that makes me more of a hermit and more more of a homebody just by the nature of it, not only just because I'm working at home, but, but I become engaged in that flow of energy, so I, I, I'm not as inclined. But what's also happening is, you know, ten, fifteen years ago it was easier to bridge um, the reality that I lived in and the reality of the rest of the world, there were more pleasant places to go and and where you went, the places were more pleasant but increasingly it 's like i I really do feel just like I have to think that i 'm just living in an alien society, and that 's okay. actually, the more I accept it, the, the less it bothers me i 've often thought about like living in the Soviet Union or some place where there 's just not the slightest pretense that you can actually expect anything or relate to it. You, j- you just move through it. Um, when Maria and Bella, who have now both died, came from Russia, what, whatever it was, 25 or 30 or more years ago, they left when Russia was still um, in the grip of communism. And uh, part of the reason they left, they were both in their 20s, I think, young, young sisters. They were on a streetcar somewhere and some slightly drunk KGB officer... Asked them for their identity papers. And they, you know, got through the encounter, but if that man had wanted anything of them, he could have taken it, and there was nothing they could have done. And after that encounter, they got off the streetcar, and Maria said to Bella, we are leaving this country. You know, it's just like, we can't possibly stay here. But the thought form is there that this is just an alien society, and I try to keep my head down, when our friends uh, Anand and Kirtani first started going to Moscow, they have two economies there and one is for the resident Russians and the other was for any tourists and the price, is, the price of everything for tourists was you know, five times as high as it was for the residents, but we're, we don't have that kind of money. So they were absorbing Anand and Kirtani, who are Americans, into their Russian world so they could go to the ballet and go, go to the museum on Russian prices. But they finally had to say to them, you must stop smiling so much. <laughs> because everyone will know you can't possibly be Russian. Because in that society you hold yourself in because it's, it's not a society you can relate to. You have to protect yourself from it for so many reasons. Now, you know, we haven't by no means have we reached that point. But, but after many years... of of struggling, as you know, as the policewoman of noise for the entire planet, a position from which I have recently retired, um, (laughs) I just realized, why would I expect, why would I expect this society to conform to my values? It doesn't have my values. Just as simple as that. You go over to Kohl's and it's not merely that the music assaults you inside, now that music assaults you outside. And, you know, my, my absolute favorite of, of most terrible things is, uh, you know, remember um, uh, Gyandev used to give the award for the most egregious misuse of yoga in advertising in America. He used to give a, an award every year. <laughs> and I think the one advertising Hormel ham was the worst one year. <laughs> you know, they used yoga to advertise. <laughs> Just whatever it was. That, that's, you get the point. So this is, this is of that nature. I was, when, it was when I was in the LAX, Los Angeles airport, and you, you come out of the airport, you cross the street, you wait there for the little shuttle buses to pick you up. It's, you're, you're standing in, in four lanes of constant traffic, the little island about this wide, and there are loudspeakers above you, and there is you know, very cacophonous music being poured onto your head which even at the best of times does not sound attractive, but now it's just one more sound with all of the traffic, but this one is just a few feet over your head. Like, who thought that was a good idea? But really, seriously, it's a satanic plot. And it really is. It's, It's the force of darkness doing everything it can to wreck us. Because the effect of all of that is to just, is to wreck your Equanimity, your your capacity to be inwardly guided, your sense of serenity, your ability to um, hold your center—it's just like a con- it, it's a it's a it, an actual conspiracy to to break uh, to break us, and it's working. It's it's working really well, and simultaneously, people who are not in tune with this are being driven, you know, farther toward that's the picture that we always draw that society used to be shaped like a cigar and you could just hang out kind of in the middle without having to have a real position I mean that's the world I grew up in but now it's shaped like a dumbbell and you you just there's just like everything is just to go to the airport you know is really to enter turf that is very um, that does violence to your spirit to go to the coals place to go. Joanne Fabrics, they play the music, which is very unpleasant, too loud. And, I, and I, I look at the people who work there and I think, how can they stand this all day long? And I said something about, this music is a little too loud, don't you think? Well, it, the volume is set by corporate headquarters. You know, they can't touch it. I mean, who's in charge somewhere? But having said all of that, having resigned my position this policewoman of noise of the whole world, um, it's more relaxing just to realize we just have to make our own way here. Nobody's going to do it for us. We are really on our own track and the world is going to do what it's going to do and we can keep watching it and responding to it and, you know, basically pulling our brothers and sisters out. I mean, that's what it is. It's like we just have to keep reaching out and pulling our brothers and sisters out, as many of them as we can. You know, make our um vortex strong enough that you know they'll look up and we can pull them out one at a time. That's our job and and that's our salvation. What a blessing to realize that. Yeah, I've come to it much more much more relaxed about it. I was o oh, I was fighting it for much too long and now I'm just there. It's easier. I don't enjoy it and it hurts my heart like really hurts my heart when I see those young girls just sailing down the street you know, as they're dressed and the way they're moving and what they're thinking it's very hard on my heart but there it is that's part of, partly that's what that's what I was talking about last Sunday you pray for the poor sinners in purgatory and hope that it draws them out that's a reference for those of you who watched this on a tape to Sunday service just last two days ago but you, we do what we're doing because it makes our own vortex stronger and that will cause more people to look up remember, um, you may have heard, remember um, uh, Pavani's father Bill Yabroff, who's gone to the astral world himself now used to be able to see into the astral world he had a he, was, he lived kind of a little bit on both sides and he uh, he could, he, he would often do a clearing in the apartments that we had, and he, remember he could sense if there were, if there were disincarnate spirits hanging around and he was able to communicate with them I don't know how far he could see into the astral world, but he could, he could communicate with disincarnate spirits. And there was a, a spot in the apartment that we lived in that, two spots that felt a little odd to me, and uh, just for fun I asked him to come over. And he, he has to work alone. But he, in one of them he found, and don't ask me how this works, I have no idea, but there seems to be some geographical element involved because there they were in, in, my, in the apartment, even though they weren't even in the same dimension. So why they would actually, you know, be in the apartment when they're in another dimension is beyond me to understand. But what he described was an American Indian who had died in one of those final battles in which the remnant, the last remaining remnant of his tribe, had been completely wiped out by the white people. And he was a grown man and, and he was on his horse, and in that final battle, his daughter had been killed, just before he was killed, he saw her die, and you know, his, uh, the father's inability to protect his daughter had so destroyed him that he was just there all this time later, which would have been, what, a century, just still on his horse, but so depressed that he was just like this, and so he was looking down. And then Bill said, higher, higher, there was his daughter. And his daughter was trying desperately to get his attention, to tell him, it's all right. You know, it's over now. We don't have to do this anymore. You can just let this go. But he 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 was too depressed to relate to any reality except the downward-pulling one. And somehow... Bill was able to get him to look up. And as soon as he looked up, it was over. You know, because he he just, he saw that there she was and she was fine and that freed him and he said, and then he galloped off. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. None of it, none of it is anything I can verify except that Bill was a professor at Santa Clara University. He was a graduate of Stanford University. I mean, he was not a flaky guy. He was a solid man who had a very solid career in addition to this. So I just have to say, who knows? But the but the principle is really exactly there, which is people who are caught in this vortex of what this culture is doing to people right now, whether they even know it or not, just the, the sheer noise level and the quality of the noise, which is emphasizing lower chakras and emphasizing self-involvement and emphasizing despair... You know they're they're going to start looking down, and we we need to hover above them vibrationally, and just get their attention. And part of the way we get their attention is just by creating an, an alternate vortex, which is both literal. You know, when we're anywhere, to be as radiant as we can be, and it's as much as possible instruments of light, but also vibrational because it's it's a vibrational battle. What, what causes a person? Suddenly, to consider an alternative, I mean, there's some vibration that comes, and I believe that our uh, magnetism, when we first were in this church, and we just uh, took down what was there, but we hadn't, we had, it didn't look like this. There was this big uh, stone monolith, you know, a few feet forward that was part of the whole architecture of the of the altar area. And we hung this big velvet curtain, and we put the we put the pictures of the masters up on it. And it, it, we had that for a couple of years until we got it uh, done like this. And the, it, late at night, when I was here with a few people, and we were, made the transformation, and got the pictures hung up on the altar, and then because we were doing it um, with some kind of a little forklift with a cherry picker or something like that, because we that was the only way we could reach it, and. So then we came all the way down and I remember I walked with my back to the altar and I walked to the door because I wanted to see it. And when I turned around and all of a sudden, for the first time, the big pictures of the masters were there, I'm mean, i, I I'm not, I'm not given to paranormal experiences, it's just not the way I live, but I, I felt what I can only call an astral wind. Because there was no reason for there to be a wind, but I felt... A force go over me that was—I could—it was a tangible force that felt like a wind without it actually being one, and it was the—it was the masters swooping out the door, and just going out to make this place what it was going to be. Yeah, it was—it was very real. It was like, (laughs) (laughs) now we can get to work. (laughs) And so I've always felt, you know, that just there's a, a pulse an alternate pulse that comes out of here that is no small compensating energy. I mean, the, the light is more powerful than the darkness. The dark can be dark for a thousand years and one candle can change it. We have to always remember that. You know, just a very little light dispels a great deal of darkness. So in the end, light always wins because dark is merely the absence of light. There's no actual counterforce. So we mustn't allow ourselves ever to measure it by the measurements the darkness uses, which are material. <laughs> we have to only measure it by the power of spirit and the absolute inevitability of the victory of spirit over everything else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, you were going to say something. Please say it. Uh, so do you know what the... I don't want to say training, but whatever, whatever the talk is and especially in the middle school at uh Living Wisdom School about what you've been talking about? No, I about. don't know anything about it. No. No, I don't know. <clears throat> okay. So let's uh shall we just go down to something else? Shall we go to Michelle Evans and her relationship with Dr. Lewis? Or shall we just go home? <laughs> we'll do we'll do one more. Sixty three. Michelle Evans had studied under Dr. Lewis. As it happened, she was the first person I ever initiated at the master's request into Kriya Yoga. She was the one, remember, where they came to Swami and said he was going to have to give Sunday service, and then afterwards he was going to have to initiate someone. And Swami always uh, said that uh, she seemed as nervous as him. And then she later said it was because he was so nervous at the Kriya initiation. (laughs) She kept a photograph of Dr. Lewis on her altar. The official SRF altar, however, was designed by the master to hold only the photos of the five gurus. Mrs. Evans' edition of Dr. Lewis was unorthodox and was seen, therefore, as being opposed to the master's wishes. That's a very well-composed sentence. It was unorthodox and, therefore, was seen as being opposed to his wishes." Someone reported the matter to him. That is her own altar, he replied, and therefore her private matter. What she does there is her affair. I designed our altars for public display. So the point, you know, that he's making for us, and these are, you know, he put so much in here for us to understand what it is to be a disciple and how to, to, to navigate through what are often very subtle uh, areas of what is really in tune or what isn't. I was reading something Swami commented about um, to some of his exasperation with some of his gurubais and um, he said, if you reduce master to to something much less than he was and then feel in tune with that, it's not the same as being in tune with Master. It's, it's a little bit like when a man was um, asserting his desire to do something that, that was transparent to everyone but him was a bad idea. And he kept insisting, but it feels so right. And afterwards I said to Swamiji, I have the feeling, I mean the impression I have is... Um, He's closed himself off to all input except his own um, likes and dislikes, and therefore it does feel right to him because he's not allowing any other vibration to enter. So he's he's very much in tune with himself, and so that I mean that's the, that's the subtlety of inner guidance, is that there's we we have many different levels, and we can feel very strongly that something feels exactly right but it, it, it feels right to what dimension of our own nature because sometimes that's the difference between psychic advice and genuine spiritual advice sometimes a psychic person will read you and tell you something that's really strong in you you know that you feel to do but it won't necessarily help you spiritually they just see it in your karma and if they don't have wisdom they'll just tell you that it's there and that you know and then you'll say yes yes that's just what i feel but uh, a master might say to the man who wanted to get married you don't know her at all Oh, would you two have a destiny together because a psychic person might see i'm not i'm not being against psychics i'm just it's but it's an example and you yourself might feel i have this great powerful push in this way it must be right it feels so strong, yeah, it does. But what part of you is feeling it? So the what what Swami is trying to help us do with this book is just just parse apart all these nuances of attunement by giving us all these examples, and it, we don't end up with rules that we can follow, because there are no rules that you can follow. But the, just that little line, well, when, when it came to living for God, Master was very austere. You know, austere is not harsh. It's not like he was a harsh taskmaster, but on that point he was very austere. There wasn't a lot of, you know, you either, you're either for it or you're not. It, was just, it just got stripped down very simple. But now we're talking about what's on somebody's personal altar and the fact that Master, as he, as he made the distinction, this is a public altar. But what you do in your, own, in your own place is your own private matter. But because it was unorthodox, many people thought it was opposed to Master's wishes. And that's how the freedom of self-realization, it's how Christianity becomes churchianity. That's how self-realization turns into something else is that this is how Master did it. But Master also was always looking at the reality of it. You know, Swamiji actually talked to me once about the fact that I've always had a big picture of him on every altar that I've had. And, and so you come into Chela Bhavan, I mean, all of you have been there, you've seen. There's always been a big picture of Swamiji there. And he himself said to me uh, at one point, he said, I have, he said, I wasn't quite sure what to do, he said, because your house is a semi-public place. <laughs> he said, but when I meditated on it he said, I felt uh, just leave, let it be you know, just let her, let her do what she feels to do it was a very interesting answer he actually said, Master said let her, feel, let her do what she feels to do because, you know, it's, a, it's an obvious question but he, he stopped to think about it but then now we've been able to do this partly because of the architecture here but there was a certain point where when Uma was still living here I don't remember what prompted it, but we wanted to bring his picture into a more prominent position. And I think you were part of that too, Lahari, were you? We were, we were playing with, you know, how about if we put it on a tripod, you know, right to the side, and Swami just sort of looked at me like, you know, you're not going to fool me with that. <laughs> no, he said. But we, you know, we ended up, we had the picture of Master and Swami on that side. This now, I mean, this is now many years later and I think this is a perfectly appropriate way to do it because you have the, alt, the pictures here but then Swami belongs up there. But he was very attentive to it. He wouldn't, we were trying to worm it in and he wouldn't do it because this is a public place and that's not how Master set it up. You know, Actually, even speaking of the altar here, when we first did it the first time, for, I always wanted a cross. I thought a cross was the way to go and this was, Master did two ways his altar. One was straight across and one was across. And this architecture just seemed to me that across was what we wanted but there was a certain reaction among people about various things and they didn't want to cross. So the first time we put the pictures up we sort of put them in a circle like this. Which, uh, you know, I knew it wasn't right. And then the first time Swami came in here I very carefully brought him in the back door. He walked right in, looked up, and he said, that's not the way the picture should be. I said, thank you, sir, we can go now. <laughs> but I just couldn't, I needed him to just say it. He said, Master, put them in a cross. He said, that's nothing, that's not what you want. And so we, we put them in a cross after that. But, and it was very exact, but to be unorthodox is not necessarily to be opposed, it's just to be different. But you have to know why and what, and you know, it's, it's interesting like that. So this is very specific and interesting. Also, see, Master's affirming more there than just that. He's, Master is recognizing several things which are very important, which is that, that as disciples, um, that, that Master's disciples had a role to play with other disciples. That, that everything didn't just go from everybody directly to Master. You know, that, that the ones that he commissioned to carry his ray, carried his ray. It means uh, when Master was living, he had other people initiating as disciples, as Kriya, because that's how it worked. And other people come to Master through his disciples. So it would be um, unrefined not to be grateful for that. Or, or you may be missing the boat not to really tune into that. So Dr. Lewis played an important role for Mrs. Evans because she probably had more contact with with Dr. Lewis than she had with Master. And her understanding of Master was through Dr. Lewis. Uh, For example, our understanding of Master is through Swamiji. And so our attunement to Swamiji is part of our attunement to Master, which is why I've always put it forward like that and why he didn't stop me, because he knows it's true too. It doesn't say anything... uh, inappropriate about him it's self-evident I would say to people sometimes when they would ask it if you worked at Apple you're going to listen to Steve Jobs how could you not listen to him he's in charge if you're going to be part of Ananda you have to listen to who's in charge you can't just say I'll go right to the President of the United States you know it's not where we're living you have to go you have to work with what's in front of you and of course when that channel is spiritual you have to relate to it appropriately Um, it's a personal matter but for reasons of his own which master knew you know there're five gurus and he's the he's the last in the line and that's how it looks aswami As always said he's not the last guru of uh in the work but he's the last guru of the work it's an official lineage and it was it it went from jesus to master and stopped but there have to be others who who carry the ray otherwise the whole thing dies i mean many of us have to become gurus in our own right eventually not today, not tomorrow, but eventually. Otherwise, the teaching isn't true. You know, so it's, it's, so it's very subtle. And it's all right there, and Mrs. Evans kept Dr. Lewis on her altar. And it was unorthodox, but it wasn't opposed. That's her private matter. That's how she has to work it out. Okay. Is that enough for tonight? We certainly are wide-ranging when we run through these, so we went... We went 56 to 63, thank you.